Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We're a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and together we're on a mission to reach people who are far from Christ and see them become devoted followers of Him. Today we have Carl Raponi speaking on obedience and um, just a lot of truth in what he has to say. So without any further ado, let's turn it over to him right now. So I was reading through Romans like a good Christian boy. And a concept jumped out at me. Obedience coming from faith instead of obedience to have faith. And for clarification, we can use obedience, works, and a thing to be followed interchangeably since obedience, works, or following are all just common actions. I say this for those people who might be listening to the sermon but don't necessarily know scriptural jargon, especially in an age where obedience is a bit of a four-letter word. Anyhow, Romans 1.5 says, Through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Alright, this would suggest that a person obeys or follows the ways and directions of God because their faith leads them in that desire. And here we have Paul trying to share this with his audience, knowing that they have got it all wrong. They think that if you belong to the right lineage and follow the customs of that lineage, then you're of faith. But then again, that's not how it works, is it? So Paul sets up his audience. First, he eases up to his audience saying that he prays for them all the time, that he's really been looking forward to getting together with them. He wants to encourage them. He's really just buttering them up. Then he starts to round the bend saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all people. So, you know, I'm just going to tell like it is, right? Then he starts to get a bit heavy, saying God is ticked at the things that people are doing out there. He names some of the heart issue stuff, some of the body issue stuff, some of the ways people are thinking. Then, bam, then comes a sucker punch. Guys, this is about you. I'm talking about you. He says that their religion is founded in religiosity, that it's not faith. Ultimately, this is why they aren't obedient. So he carries on through the rest of his letter to set up his argument that faith, that isn't based in a relationship with God through Jesus isn't faith at all. It's just adhering to rules and that doesn't really ultimately fix anything in our lives and rules never can because it really doesn't touch us in the heart. So this arrow of direction, faith leading to obedience and not just obedience to be faithful is found in other parts of scripture as well. Why do you think that the first three commandments are about our relationship with God and then the other seven are about how we behave with one another? Or when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, the answer was to first love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And then the second was how we should engage with the people around us. Or in Ephesians where Paul writes, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can brag. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, here Paul is showing us that you don't act obediently for your salvation. Instead, you have the implied relationship with Jesus, you receive grace, and through that relationship in Jesus, we do good works or act obediently. And of course, my favorite, which is the story of, that Jesus gives to the Pharisees after they crash at dinner parties at, the one where he explains to them and to us the very heart of what it means to walk with God, the very famous parable of the prodigal son, 
Remember? In this story, a man has two sons. The younger son is a big jerk and tells his dad that he wants his portion of his inheritance and then he takes off to live the wildlife. He's living it up and loving life until he isn't. Soon, he's broke. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, his older brother is tending to the work and the chores that his dad has for him to do. He's the good boy, right? Stays at home with his dad, works hard, doesn't complain, doesn't ask for much. He's doing fine. In the, mean, in the meantime, when his younger uh, brother realizes how poor he is and how good he had it back home, he decides he'll return back home and ask to be accepted as a servant in his father's house. Now, of course, his dad, being the awesome, loving father that he is, takes him back, no questions asked, and makes him part of the family again. And why? Because the father cares more about the relationship that was lost and had been revived than about what his son did or didn't do. In fact, even though the youngest son was such a jerk, the father throws him a massive welcome home party. And now, that's a great dad. However, the oldest son isn't so forgiving. When he hears about his brother's return and the party that's been thrown, he's not having it. And when the father comes to speak to the oldest son about why he's not coming to the party, the oldest son goes off on the dad. Sure, he goes on about the fact that the youngest son was awful to the father and irresponsible with his inheritance and so on and so on. But in his little speech, he drops some clues that give the listener some pretty interesting insights into the oldest brother's views which really reflect those of Jesus' listeners at the party, which actually reflect ours. The oldest brother says to the father, Look, all these years I've been slaying for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you've never even given me a young goat that I could celebrate with my, with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Do you hear it? The oldest brother is saying, Look, I'm a good person. I've done it right. He literally talks about being an obedient son who does a lot of work for his dad. But in all of his obedience and hard work and slaving away, he missed the point. He failed to see that he's not his father's worker or field hand. He's his child. And if you're a parent, then you know that your child's merit is not based on what they do for you, but simply because they are your child. There's that air of direction again. The oldest son didn't have a relationship with his father that led him to be obedient and work hard for the father. No, instead, he felt that he had to work hard to be an obedient and be obedient to earn a place in his father's household. And because of this, the oldest son couldn't share the father's unconditional love towards the younger brother. His failure to understand his relationship with his father is the root for his failure to love his brother as well. In fact, here's a thought. Remember that I mentioned how Jesus' response to the question, what is the greatest commandment, was to first love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and the second is to love others as you love yourself? Well, if you don't do the first part of loving God well and developing and nurturing that relationship, then when you go to love others as you love yourself, if you love yourself only as a person of utility, a useful, obedient person, a good little boy or girl, then when you go to love others, you will love them as you love yourself. You will love them based on their utility and obedience, not as family.
In short, you will fail to see them as family to you because you fail to see yourself as family to God. Mind blown. Let me share a story from my life where this same kind of notion manifested itself. When I worked at the Bridge Youth Center under Youth Unlimited, um, it came time for us to give the outside of the building a bit of a refresh. So I came up with a sketch, bought all my graffiti paints, and then went out one night to the Youth Center to um, start working on the mural for this building. I worked on it until the, uh, deep into the night, and when I felt that I had done as much as I could um, for one evening, I began to pack up my gear, uh, put everything into my car. And it was at that point that I saw her. She was working the corner of Brock and Bethune, like so many sex trade workers do. And an anger began welling up inside of me. I thought to myself, man, here we are trying to reach the youth in our community, and right here, across the street, on this corner is this prostitute, uh, you know, making our neighborhood lowly. I was mad. So I finished packing my gear and walked over to her. I asked her if she was waiting for someone and she asked, are you? And I told her, look, I run a youth center and we have kids in and out of here all the time. Maybe you should, um, you know, take this down the street. Without saying uh, more than okay, she headed off to a new corner and I headed back home. And so then why did I feel so terrible? I did the right thing, right? I did my job in keeping our corner tidy. I felt terrible because I did the work, but based on my work, but based on my work on whether she was beneficial or not to my cause. You know that cause, the Lord's work at a Christian youth center. The irony was that the, the painting that I was doing on the side of the building was the word love. The next day, I talked about my encounter with some high school kids that I was mentoring. I told them that I'd gone about it all wrong. I asked them to pray that God would give me a second chance with her to make it right. Well, unfortunately, God answers prayer. Three days later, I saw her again. I was super nervous to talk to her. I mean, who wants to walk up to somebody and say, hey, remember me from the other time when you were working the corner? It's all kinds of awkward, right? But I did it because I chose to be obedient to what God would want because of my relationship with God and to my relationship to her through our common father. I walked up to her and said, I don't know if you remember me. A few nights ago, I had asked you to go down the road. She said that she remembered. I told her that I was wrong. She told me that we're all entitled to our opinions. And I told her that our opinions don't make us right. I hadn't even asked her her name. So I said that I was sorry for how I treated her and I put out my hand and introduced myself. I'm Carlo, I said. She told me her name was Mary. I said to her, I know it gets hot outside in the summer and if you ever need some water, or to need, you need to use the washroom, feel free to come into the youth center. It would make me happy. And that's when her, <laughs> and that's when her chin started to quiver and that, cheek, and that tear rolled down her cheek. And she said, that means a lot to me. Through, that, through the work of some pretty amazing people at Youth Unlimited, we began an outreach to sex trade workers who frequent that corner. We had a food cupboard, safe sex kits, hot coffee and water, 
and we shared stories with people in that little kitchenette, heard theirs and shared ours, and it was a community. They knew that people genuinely cared for them. Why did I try to make amends and do what was right? Because the relationship I have with God taught me the right thing, what the right thing to do was. I understood who I am to God, his son, and therefore who she is to God, his, his daughter, and that that makes her and I brother and sister. I didn't do it based on the merits of work, but on family. And then, as a son who wants to please his dad and know that his dad just wants his daughter taken care of, I did what was right in God's eyes as an act of obedience. My actions came as an outflowing of my faith. The arrow of direction was important. So, in that first passage in Romans, I began reading again and again and really absorbing what Paul was saying. And as I did, I found myself picking up on more and more in that opening passage. When you break it down, it goes like this. Through Jesus, Paul receives grace. So it begins with his relationship to the Savior. Paul receives a purpose, a job that he should obey, which is uh, to be an apostle. To whom? To the Gentiles, for the benefit of others that don't know Jesus. And why? To bring them to obedience that comes from a faith. They too now have a faith that leads to obedience. The circles perpetuated. Q. Elton John. That's enough of that. All right, so, so far so good. We have Paul giving an example of how faith in Christ leads to obedience and how he encourages others to also have that level of obedience, which stems from their faith rooted in Jesus. But if our faith leads to obedience, what happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus as a primary focus and center point? What happens is faith and therefore obedience gets obscured by life because life is hard and we forget how to see and feel and follow. Well, let's look at Damas. His name shows up three times in the Bible. Twice are great, the third time, not so much. All right, Damas is an interesting character in the Bible. He was obedient and followed and was counted among those who were reaching the Gentiles for Christ's sake. His name is found in Philemon 1, where Paul mentions him as a fellow worker. His name is also found in Colossians 4, where Paul mentions him as a dear friend counted among the others that were in ministry. But then finally, in 2 Timothy, Paul asks for help because Damas has abandoned Paul and gone back to Thessalonica because he so loved this world. He abandoned his post because he so loved this life. Life was his focus, not the bigger picture of eternal life alongside Christ. He wanted a normal life, and honestly, who doesn't? Look, life is hard. When I was young and involved in a Christian group at university, faith and living for God seemed so pervasive. Life was a lot more black and white. Then I got a job in a Christian organization, and every day was about serving God. It was literally my job. Then I entered into the secular working world, and nothing changed my beliefs, but my contacts made everything harder to live out that obedience, at least overtly. When you have a business, you have to make sure you don't alienate, or worse, offend your clientele. So you hold back your tongue a little bit. What seems so morally obvious in your Christian group is a lot more gray in the day-to-day, and suddenly those 
complex scriptures start to make a lot more sense as you see those characters in the Bible struggle through making it day to day. And lastly, you find that people just don't care. They live in a world without God and they're fine with it from their day to day. When I was writing the sermon, I was in a coffee shop and um, I was struggling with some concepts. And I saw a guy who was reading a, um, a book and had David and Goliath on the cover. And, and I said, oh, you know, like, what are you reading? Just sort of spark up conversation and let him know that I was writing a sermon. And I was like, if you could, if you could hear anything, you know, uh, a question about anything uh, pertaining to God, what, what would it be? You know, just throwing that out there. And his response was like, a sermon, I know nothing about sermons. I don't even know what goes into one. Uh, I'm the wrong guy to ask. And I remember just, you know, um, you're a little bit, I don't know, I guess, not, not hurt, but, but sideswiped by the fact that, yeah, there are people who just know nothing, have no context about Christianity. It's not, it's not part of their life. It's not part of anything. Um, so much so that they couldn't even tell you what a sermon is or what one's like. They're so removed, and I find that there's so many people in my personal life that are like that. And sometimes we have these great conversations, but in the end, it sort of ends with, I'm just sort of okay as I am. They live life without God, without any, um, at least, Christian principles that they know of, um, and they're fine. They do it, right? For a really long time, I struggled with this because I wondered, was I wrong in the importance of my daily faith, really following God, living morally, all of it? And was I wrong in the importance of the need for Jesus in my life and the lives of others? There's a show on Netflix uh, that I've just finished watching the first season of, and I really like it. It's called Jupiter's Legacy. And in this show, a handful of men and women receive superpowers to help out humankind. Oh, and they live for a really long time. Anyways, they have a code that they live by. One of the points is that they don't kill anybody, and another one is that they don't get involved in politics or try and change the world that way. However, in a changing culture, the validity of that code comes into question because if others aren't going to play fair, why ought we to play fair? You see the parallels of Christianity, right? Often what we stand for, the ability to make the right decision, are tough because life is not linear all the time or even ever. So what does one do? For me, in time, I stayed true to the course because I kept Jesus as the center. I was encouraged by passages like Psalm 77 where the psalmist says that he envied the people around him who just lived life carefree without God. He thought that maybe he had it all wrong and he was wasting his time. But when he remembered his final destiny, their final destiny, how it all fits together and, and how it goes, the psalmist ends praising God. Remember Damas who loved this world so much that he abandoned the task of reaching people for Christ? That passage sounds a lot like John 3.16, except for the fact that God so loved the world that he leaned into saving it through Jesus. Both Damas and Jesus lived on earth. One felt the grind of life and said, I just want to live a normal life. The other one felt that same grind and said, there's work to be done, something worth fighting for. Ultimately, what am I saying here? I'm saying that as we venture through this crazy journey called life, the choices we have and the choices we have to make are tough. What should we be doing? 
how should we live, and what has value. While I can't tell you the context-specific answer for you, I can say that if we keep Jesus as the center and really work hard on that relationship, our obedience will flow naturally out of that. And we can do this together. So let me say in this simple sermon, I want to remind you to love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And then go out and love others like you love yourself. Keep Him as the center. Stay focused. And you'll do fine. Wow, Carlo, thank you again, man. That was very powerful, very encouraging, very inspirational. And if you didn't get anything out of that, I beg you to listen to it again and again and again. Um, There is so much depth and so much power to what you had to say. So thank you for that, Carlo. And thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to follow up with us on all of our socials. And uh, we hope to see you again in the near future.